listeners. Welcome to the 126th episode of The Goods Film Podcast. This is Dan, and I have Brian with me somewhere out there in the the far reaches of the internet. Hey, Dan. Good to be with you again. We're getting into serious numbers these yeah. days. 126. Yeah, good stuff. But despite us having so many episodes under our belt, this film that I picked for you is actually one that I've had on the docket basically since the podcast started. There's like maybe three movies left that were original candidates that I just never have gotten around to picking. And this is one of them. The keenest and most uh, strongest memory listeners might remember at the end of episode 11, I gave Brian a choose your own adventure for the next episode. And uh, I said one of these was an 80s film written by a pretty well-regarded director. And one of them is a trashy 90s film that nobody has seen. And Brian picked the 80s film. There's a universe out there where it went the other way. Exactly. And our lives are totally different. Yeah. Brian's probably president in that timeline. <laughs> uh, what would happen if I robbed the quickie mart? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what we ended up picking was some kind of wonderful, which our 12th episode, we talked about that. And then this was the movie we didn't pick. And that is the film Trojan War from 1997 starring Will Friedle and Jennifer Love Hewitt, directed by George Wong, who I did not know anything about prior to researching this episode. Brian looked him up. I think we got a couple of anecdotes about him. And yeah, so this is a film very much connected to some kind of wonderful. And I think I want to wait till we get to the recap to talk about exactly why that is. But it basically it has the same plot and it's a plot of note to me personally. Yeah, some familiar beats in this one. Exactly, yeah. So before we dive in, so this is, it's a teen comedy, a raunchy teen comedy starring Will Friedle, who, if you know him, it's almost certainly from the sitcom Boy Meets World, which was a big thing for people our age. Brian, I would say we're pretty close to the peak age of people who are really into Boy Meets World, maybe like people a couple years older than us. Yeah, I think I was a little young, but I was definitely aware of it. And so when the movie started, I recognized him. Do we want to reveal at this point that you spoke to him? Yeah, so I was going to build to that. So he plays the older brother in Boy Meets World. I typically thought of him as having kind of this uh, shaggy, almost Hanson-esque haircut. It was very popular in the late 90s. Yeah, he's a handsome 90s boy. Yeah. Like he might have a surfboard in his garage. He's not especially tall. He's shorter than I would have expected, I noticed throughout the film. But I think he's very funny. So anyways, um, what, one thing I, I had the idea for doing for the, whenever, we, whenever I pick Trojan War that I really wanted to do is cameo. So we've talked about cameo. I've never booked a cameo before. Brian, I think you have... And then we have our one anecdote from our attempted cameo, the pod at one point. Right. Yeah, I haven't brought haven't brought one to the air yet. Yeah. So this was my first time booking cameo. I've never done it before, but I knew from the start that Will Friedle would have been the person I wanted to do it for and for this movie. And I figured, hey, maybe I could like integrate it in with the podcast. So uh, I am going to play it for you. So Cameo, in case you don't know, is basically 
you pay a nominal amount of money. And one of the things I liked about Will Friedle's cameo account is that his were pretty cheap. Uh, when I was initially looking at it, it was like $50 and it's up to like um, 80 or $90. And a lot of people charge a lot more than that on cameo. Yeah, some are very expensive. For people who I think are less interesting than Will Friedle. And uh, I had watched some of his, like whenever you go to their page, you can look at like the three most recent ones they've posted. And his were always really funny and high energy and like, just great, great content. And I was like, I want to support this guy. I think he probably bumped the price recently because he uh, he actually started a podcast too, Brian. Oh, yeah. Maybe he'll invite us to the podcast. That'd be awesome. What's his show? It's called Pod Meets World. And it's part of this trend of old shows where the cast get together and they do like watch episodes. Have you heard about any of these? I don't think so. Yeah, so I think the first big one was The Office. Um, the actress who plays Pam and Angela started doing it. And then right around the same time, Scrubs got one from, I think, Turk and JD. And then uh, Community got one with Joel McHale and Ken Jeong. And um, there have been a lot of shows that have gotten, like, basically cast members getting back together and talking about the show, I think usually one episode at a time and fond memories of it and stuff. And I don't really know what else Will Friedle is up to now, but um, I wanted to get him in on the episode if we could. And so I pulled the trigger on a cameo and he answered. So should I should I go ahead and, and play that audio now, Brian? Yeah, I don't think it gives away any spoilers. So you might as well plug it in. So what I asked him was, do you still think fondly of Trojan War? And do you have any particular favorite memories filming it? And here's what he said. Hey, Dan and Brian, Will Friedel here. Thank you for reaching out and asking uh, that important question or a couple important questions because, yes, I loved Trojan War. I loved Trojan War for so many reasons. It was my first big feature film. I had done, um, you know, movies of the week and stuff that I really loved doing. Uh, but this was the first kind of, wow, I'm shooting a movie for Warner Brothers. It was 38 straight nights of shooting because the whole thing takes place in one night. So you have to shoot at night. It was like 38 straight nights of shooting and um i had to get i get soaking wet in the movie so for night after night after night they just kept soaking me down the, the start of the night and covering me in flour and doing kind of all this stuff um it was it was grueling but it was man we had fun and the director of the film george wong is still a very good friend of mine and we're actually working on a project together right now so uh yeah trojan war meant a ton to me it, it really did it still does um you know, I started dating Love Hewitt after that, and she and I became very, very good friends on that movie. Um, there was just a lot that made it a very, very special film and a very special time in my life. So, yeah, I, I loved it. Um, I, I, the reception of the film, obviously, we thought was going to be a lot bigger. They, they premiered it in two theaters in the country, and George and I flew out to one of the premieres in Boulder, Colorado, and were the only people in the theater premieres meaning they played it um and we were literally the only people in the theaters for the first uh screening so yeah it was a lot of work to uh to watch it by ourselves but it has gained this kind of cult following and we love that um because we worked hard on it we really did and, and we enjoyed shooting it so thank you for doing a film review um keep in mind all the nice things I just said about it as you're reviewing the film, because I'm sure uh, there's things about my performance that probably aren't great. But uh, yeah, I was still finding myself as an actor. Um, but that's the excuse of every actor. I still loved it. Loved everything about it. So thanks for reaching out and break a leg on your podcast. Bye. So a couple reactions to this, Brian. First of all, great answer. He definitely felt like he was legitimately passionate about this project. And I like that. 
What, what did you think? Any any thoughts here? Well, a couple things about it. The first, uh, sad to say, so this was one of the weeks where I waited the longest to watch the movie of any time previously. Like, I just wrapped it before we started recording here. Um, so a couple hours ago, when Dan sent me this cameo video and was very excited about it, I tried to match that enthusiasm despite not knowing who was in the video. I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> um, because he looks totally different now. Yeah. He's got like a soul patch beard. Um, still kind of the same haircut, I guess, but I just didn't know who it was. And then, <laughs> then I'm like, this has got to be associated with the movie. So let me watch the movie and then I will know. And then of course the movie starts rolling. It's like, oh, it's the big brother from Boy Meets World. Okay. But now we're on the same page. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing is how he said that the movie premiered at two theaters and they went to one of the theaters and were the only people there. I thought that was really interesting. And I, I looked it up and I think, Dan, you can tell us a little bit more about the release of this film, which is like no other movie I've ever read about. Yeah. So I don't know exactly why or what happened. This movie premiered at two theaters. I think he mentioned that. And the box office total was three hundred and nine dollars, not three hundred nine million, not three hundred nine thousand. $309. I feel like that's got to be like the lowest of all time. It's like, how can you even get less than that? I, I don't yeah. know. Really strange. Um, I'll say that at last year's film festival at William and Mary, they screened the hundredth episode of my public access TV show as an official festival event. And me and Teddy of buzzed on movies, who was the Q and a, invited guest were the only two people in that theater <laughs> and and that was embarrassing but they paid for my room and board all weekend so i at least made a little money you and will friedel yeah simpatico on this one you, you've been there you understand his plight right kind of <laughs> uh, although i still wonder because this supposedly had a budget of 15 million dollars i wonder if there's like some laundering going on who can say yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm also quite curious about exactly how this happened. Um, because they pulled it from theaters in less than a week, it says. Yeah, yeah. So so maybe just because it was so bad that they're like, it's not even worth it. Maybe they had maybe it tested poorly. I don't know if this was before or after they did uh, what's it called? Cinema score where you kind of get the, the audience reaction on it. They probably didn't market it at all if that many people showed up. Bizarre, but um, it has had a little bit of a resurgence. Yeah, that's my question is, how did you come across it then? Yeah, so uh, I, I don't know how I ever would have heard of it. Um, it got mentioned on a podcast. I think it was Alternate Ending and like some list of movies that are forgotten, but whoever was picking it appreciated. And the one that he came up with was this was one of his and I was like, oh, I, I like Wilfred L. He's a funny guy. It sounds like a, a teen comedy from the 90s. Um, Jennifer Love Hewitt's in it, you know, one of my uh, celeb crushes. And so I was like, oh, I'll give it a go. And it turned out to be, I would say in many ways, like the epitome of a Dan movie. It's like maybe not all time number one, but like pretty high up there. 
Yeah, I think if you trained an AI on all the previous Dan movies we've watched, it would write this movie. (laughs) One other thing I wanted to shout out. I do want to tease that thing out about what makes this a Dan movie. But before we kind of go down to this movie specifically, the last thing I wanted to point out from from what Will said uh, was that he had been doing TV or movie of the week type thing. So like TV movie type stuff. And uh, one that he made actually after this, not before this. So it's not one he was referring to and like the ones that he did before this, but still the same vintage of things that he did is this movie called My Date with the President's Daughter. Have you ever seen this movie, Brian? I've heard the title. I don't know anything about it. Yeah. So I watched it when I was a kid and I remember thinking it was fine. I haven't seen it since. I might pick it for the the pod someday. But the number one thing about my date with the president's daughter is that they hired the weird rock band called the Presidents of the United States of America, who are best known for their novelty song, Peaches, Millions of Peaches, Peaches for Me, to write the theme song for that movie. And it's this earworm that goes, my date with the president's daughter. Oh, yeah. So great, great theme song for a movie that I don't remember anything about except the theme song and that Will Friedle is in it. Yeah, we should do that one as a double feature for Fourth of July or something or Memorial Day or something like that. Yeah, that would be fun. Which one comes at the end of the summer? Labor Day. Yeah. But do it paired with Chasing Liberty. Two movies about dating the president's daughter. What is that a decom or something? It's not. It was a rom-com. I think I talked about it way back when we did Kate and Leopold as an example of a rom-com that I saw the trailer for when mm. I was like nine. Yeah. And I yeah. thought that's an interesting premise. I'll have to watch that at some point when I'm an adult and watch rom-coms. <laughs> but what annoys me a little bit is I have learned subsequently that the daughter's name is not Liberty. That's her like secret service call sign. Uh, which makes me a little less invested. Oh, yeah. I was really hoping he was so enthusiastic about his political career that the the candidate actually named his daughter Liberty. Yeah, that would have been good, huh? Well, why don't we dive into the film Trojan War? So this movie centers around Brad Kimball is the name of the main character. Um, And he is a high schooler who is madly in lust or perhaps in love, that's what he thinks, with Brooke, who is a popular blonde girl in his biology class. Uh, and meanwhile, of course, he's best friends with Leah, who is this, I guess she's supposed to be tomboyish or maybe also kind of nerdy, kind of best friend girl played by Jennifer Love Hewitt. But she's like 18 or 19 and she's Jennifer Love Hewitt. And like, she does not convey in the slightest as like the frumpy best friend type. She's like way more beautiful than Brooke in my, my humble opinion. Oh, well, I mean, she is very attractive, but this blonde girl is like Tex Avery double take. I thought she was really, really a smoke show as Kristen Bell says. Oh yeah. Okay. So, so you were with Brad Kimball on this. Yeah. I mean, both of them quite stunning but then i also did not buy that brad is supposed to be a nerd or whatever like i don't think they really established that like i guess he is doing well in the class that they're both in but he doesn't ever strike me as like the really studious 
high achieving academic type. Yeah, there's like a whole thing where he gets kind of embarrassed in front of the class because he's daydreaming about Brooke. And he definitely I don't know if he says it explicitly, but it's pretty clearly like uh, hasn't really dated anyone and is a virgin throughout the movie. But also he sits in the back row of the class. What what teacher's pet sits in the back row of the class, Dan? Seriously, I don't know. That's a good, very good point. But as anyone who has listened to many of our podcast episodes probably gathered just from that intro that I gave to those characters, this is one of those movies that I've talked quite a bit about, the Some Kind of Wonderful type movie. So this is like like my my number one guilty pleasure type of movie. I don't know if you call it like a formulaic story beat or whatever. I don't know. But basically, uh, I'll watch any of these if I can find them. Stars like uh, a fairly geeky dude who gets a shot with the, the bombshell, but has a platonic best friend and eventually comes to realize that he's actually in love with the platonic best friend. But it's got to be from the guy's perspective, which is less common than from the girl's perspective. So anyways, this fits this to a T. It's like a textbook example, just like some kind of wonderful. So uh, how many of these have we talked about? I, I thought of some kind of wonderful then the Snow Day movie, and then the Time Loop movie Premature also had that. So those were the three that I could think of that had this exact structure that, that we talked about, Brian. Yeah, I might have to study the master list, but I think that's comprehensive. Uh, but this has the double whammy of also being an all-in-one night movie. Yes. So yeah. you can kind of loop in like American Graffiti and the other snow one. What what was that called? Let, Let it, it snow. snow. Yeah. Yeah. Which I kept getting. I kept thinking Snow Day. It's like, what, did we watch two that were both called Snow Day? <laughs> but no, they're just on a day and there is snow. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. It's like, so what what are the what makes it a Dan movie? So it's it's usually it's a teen comedy or a teen dramedy. So, bam, you're right. We got a. Uh, American Graffiti. We got some kind of wonderful other teen comedies we've talked about. It's what do you call it? Uh, not golden hour. Yeah, crowded hour. Crowded hour. It's crowded hour. Everything happens at once over like a short period of time, and quote unquote real time, even if it's not really real time. Some of those we did. Um, what's the college one? The the link later college one. Everybody wants some. That was like our third episode. Right. Although that was spread over. I was thinking of that, but that, as you've said, is spread over a little more time. It's like several days. It's like a weekend. Right. It's it's like three days or something. But this one had me thinking of a few other things, like um, some elements of Idle Hands that we watched not too long ago. Oh, good call. Good call. Yeah. Where it's kind of a raunchy 90s teen comedy. Uh, where they like got to get to a party, right? Uh, no severed hand tearing people's scalps off in this one. It would have been a curveball. <laughs> also, um, it's got the one that it makes me think a lot of is Super Bad. I assume you've seen Super Bad, right? Yeah, yeah, I can see that too. It's got like the big Odyssey aspect to it, and like a sort of vain illusion of possible sex although in this case it's, it's not quite so elusive as we'll see the other one i was thinking of that we didn't technically cover on the episode 
but I mentioned it in our Snow Day discussion as like a carbon copy of Snow Day, and then you went and watched it, and you wrote a blurb on it for your your site, is Max Keeble's Big Move. Oh yeah, I like that movie. That's a fun movie. That also has the two girls. Right. One of them's a friend. One of them's the bombshell that is out of reach. Right. And it recycles some cast members from Snow Day. Another thing about this movie, just a pretty interesting set of of actors appear. It's like it got a good, weird collection of people who are in this. Pretty random. So the two best friends other than Jennifer Love Hewitt are played by the actor who plays Hyde in that 70s show. This in here, he's called Seth. Uh, And this actor is named Danny Masterson, who is a major scumbag. He's like a Scientologist. Oh, you mean in real life? Yeah. Okay. I saw that in the document and wasn't sure if you were talking about his 70s show character or what. No, no. Danny Masterson, not... Not only is he a uh, Scientologist and who's like kind of advocated for the nastiness that the Scientology does and kind of use Scientology as a shield for like all the bad stuff he's done. But he's like been very credibly accused of rape in the past few years and been on trial for it. So, you know, I wouldn't say I was excited to see him, but still just kind of a curveball appearance here. And then the other one that's even more of a curveball is this little goony guy named Josh. And it wasn't until this time around that I was like, I know that I've seen this guy before. And I looked it up and he's the voice actor from Max in a Goofy movie. So we got a Goofy movie crossover here, too. <laughs> that that actor's name is Jason Marsden. It really is like a blender. Yeah, exactly. And a reminder, I talked about a Goofy movie on the Two Friends Watch podcast with Andrew, who has guested on this pod before. So, yeah, so we pop into this movie in the middle of bio class where Brad is fantasizing about Brooke. And then at the end of bio class, um, the teacher is giving out free Trojan brand condoms. The movie's called Trojan War. That's the, the, the thing, Trojan. And I've read somewhere, but I couldn't find in the lead up to today that the Trojan brand did a significant portion of the funding of this film, which would make sense. It's like a... a not, it's like a higher level product placement. It's even in the title. It appears frequently throughout the film. And it's like the center point. Right. I was trying to think of any other movie that was like the product placement of one brand was that strong. I don't know. It was almost like the wizard, like as a commercial for Nintendo and like how they debut Super Mario 3 at the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's almost like a commercial. But with condoms yeah <laughs> or the Care Bears movie always a good time to talk about it and think about the Care Bears movie I will never let you forget and so there's when it's Brad's turn to grab from the jar of free condoms there's only one left and he's like nah I won't need that no way he'll, he'll never have a shot with Brooke but like literally he's walked out of the class and Brooke walks up to him and asks him to tutor her and is like writing hearts on his hand with her phone number. One thing, this is like, I don't know, less than 10 years before cell phones were very prominent. And so you kind of get the last gasp of pre-cell phone plot points, which I always enjoy. It's a little different, you know, writing somebody's phone number in pen on the back of someone's hand is a very much a pre-cell phone 
thing, you know? True. There are a few, like, specifically 90s references in this that I thought were funny and, and definitely placed it in a moment in time. Like, at one point, he accidentally dials movie phone. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought of you for that one. So he decides while he's tutoring her, he's going to make his big move. Brad Kimball's big move. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's possible episode title. And he practices it on Leah. And if it were not already obvious to the audience that Leah's got feelings for Brad, it's obvious here. And one thing that kind of got me is like, I, I just did not believe that she was like a nerd, like a non-popular kid. Jennifer Love Hewitt. And when she's like, so she's part of her thing is she uses big words, which, okay, that's like a, a fun character trait. Somebody who uses diction beyond what is reasonable, but she like, doesn't use it correctly. She uses the word vapid, but she mispronounces it as vapid. It's like, if you, I mean, I guess people who like read these wor words sometimes don't know how they're pronounced, but I was like, you're kind of showing that she's not actually this, uh, dictionary geek here. Yeah, she's not a freaky genius girl. That's like right. Vanessa Hudgens. <laughs> Good reference. Yeah, I mean, this this bit where he's doing the rehearsal of what he's going to say to Brooke, but he's saying it to Leah rang a little melodramatic to me. Like, I don't think it would really go down this way. It's like either he would put it together now that there's actually chemistry with Jennifer Love Hewitt or he just wouldn't do this. Yeah, and reminder on what will said is is that they actually got together shortly after this film was made and dated each other for a while oh wow so the chemistry was authentic i will say actually that i bought it and i i actually thought they had really good chemistry together i think one of the things that will Dell does well is i think he's very funny in general but i think he's really good at having good chemistry with other actors and so um the few times few things i've seen him in i've always felt like he has good interactions with other other actors. And I really bought that like he and her were best friends, which is kind of silly, but I actually did. I think so too. Yeah. So that night when he's going over to tutor, first we, we meet the D bag boyfriend and she's in the middle of a fight with the D bag boyfriend. I, I get unreasonably excited when there's a D bag boyfriend. It's like the honorary Billy Zane award. Hey, this is the same year as Titanic. So I was definitely thinking about that too. Yeah. Do you think these people went to go see Titanic? They probably did. Yeah, I, I think so. Another one, this is a little more of a stretch, but I was also thinking about how we talked in Lincoln from 2012, how like every scene there's like some new person walks in. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's that person, <laughs> but on like a very different level of fame and acclaim. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, Kathy Griffith. Oh, yeah, I, I've heard of her. So, yeah. <laughs> David Patrick Kelly, the character actor who clinked bottles in The Warriors. <laughs> so now he's he's supposedly tutoring Brooke. Oh, and when he drives over there, he, he's got to take, for whatever reason, his dad's like, take the Jaguar. I don't know why. I thought this was kind of funny. It's like a, the equivalent of like going to the big school dance. You get to take the Jaguar. But he's just going to tutor this one girl. But um, we get kind of a funny intro to it where the dad is doing very obvious double entendres on the the Jaguar. But he, he gets to to her house and like starts doing his nice guy routine and it works, which like it never does in movies like this, but it works in like 45 seconds. Yeah, 
15 minutes into this movie, <laughs> all the pieces are in place. She's ready to get with him. Yeah. He's about to get laid. She's disrobing. And again, like very, very rapidly. But she she only wants to to proceed if he has protection. And he didn't grab that one condom out of the jar, Brian. How different would his life have been? That's a sliding doors moment. It's like if we had picked this movie back in episode 12, how different would our life have been? I, I don't know. Is a sliding doors moment a reference to Star Wars episode one? No, Sliding Doors is a movie where I haven't actually seen it, but I think the gist of it is someone tries to either get on a train or something with the door sliding closed. And we kind of see two versions, like what happens when they're they make it on the train and what happens when they don't make it on the train. Oh, interesting. I thought it was the like the laser door that Obi-Wan isn't quite fast enough to go through. And so then Darth Maul can kill Qui-Gon Jinn. And just if he'd just been a little faster, he would have made it through those sliding doors. Maybe for those of us who were like 10 years old when Star Wars Episode One came out, that's a more apropos reference, because I think the movie Sliding Doors, which I haven't actually seen. Let's see. It came out. Oh, no, it came out in 1998, but it was like a romantic drama for adults in 1998. So starring Gwyneth Paltrow. Just one year before The Phantom Menace. So, yeah. So now what does he have to do? He has to go buy a condom to bring back to her house. I got this was very silly to me because like it's a thing where there's like in the moment. And if you have to leave the house, drive to a store, purchase protection, drive back. The moment has got to be gone at that point. So like I don't know what he's actually thinking and like why she seems to be okay with this like. What would it be, even in an ideal circumstance, like a 20 minute delay in this this hookup? But I guess that's our that's our launching point to this movie, because the rest of the movie is going to follow this sort of escalating odyssey comedy of errors as he tries to get his hands on a condom and get back to Brooke. So, yeah, he starts at this this store, this grocery store, and uh, just in general, this movie I was convinced I was remembering it as more amusing than it actually is, but I just kept laughing. Like, it's not even that good, but I just kept laughing at the goofy stuff that was going on. It's like it's a fairly cinematic version of it all. So like none of the gags themselves are like particularly unique or memorable or inspired, but like they all have just enough like we're going for it energy that it always made me smile. The presentation is kind of interesting in that you kind of have cartoon physics at moments. It's almost like a like a Three Stooges thing, like like Looney Tunes happenings, but in a live action world. I also think of there's a movie called Baby's Day Out that has this, but like something will happen that is is based in reality. And then like you'll even get cartoon sound effects and things will like go into like Benny Hill fast motion. That uh, was a little unusual. I don't know if you know this, but do you know who wrote Baby's Day Out, Brian? Who wrote Baby's Day Out? John Hughes, the same guy who wrote Some Kind of Wonderful. Okay. That's interesting. But no connection to Trojan War that you know of. Very indirect, because Some Kind of Wonderful is the same story as Trojan War. Yes, yes. John Hughes wrote Baby's Day Out. That is bizarre. Yeah, so... 
I think it's Red Letter Media. They were they the ones who did. That's the only reason I know about Baby's Day Out is their deep dive video essay on Baby's Day Out. Because I remember they did like a really long review of The Phantom Menace. And it was the first time I had ever seen a video essay where the review was basically as long as the movie. And I was like, this is wild and it's really entertaining. And now you see those all the time. There's like a million YouTube channels making things like that. But at the time, it was very novel. And after they kind of went semi-viral with The Phantom Menace one, the next one was Baby's Day Out. I was like, I've never heard of this movie. But... Uh, yeah, and they would do that each time that like they build people up. Oh, it's going to be the next Star Wars. And they'd throw you for a curve. They'd always do some silly one in between. Gotcha. So at this grocery store, if it wasn't already obvious that this was featured heavy product placement dollars from the Trojan brand of condom, there's like a huge centerpiece. Somebody spent hours lighting this this scene and like an upward dramatic angle of like this wall of different brand of different styles of Trojan condoms you could get. It's like an overwhelming number of them in their multicolored glory. Right. And so there's there's these two dudes standing around the Trojan display like, oh, you're buying condoms, huh? You know, just they're like escalating stair steps of making this whole process awkward and arduous for Brad. Um, but one of these dudes standing at the display, he has a gap in his teeth and he has a toothpick and he starts simulating intercourse between his teeth with the toothpick, you know, <laughs> shimmying it in and out. It makes a squeak. Like a straw in a movie theater cup lid, like, uh, you would get splinters. Like this would, <laughs> this would be painful and awful. And this, oh, I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> he tries to check out with it and it's the whole thing where the, there's no price tag on it. So they have to go over the loudspeaker and say, what's the cost of the Trojan prophylactics? And there's some kid who hears it and he starts crying because his mom won't get him prophylactics. Again, dumb stuff, but it was making me laugh here. So he finally gets it and he's leaving. And when he gets outside, his dad's Jaguar has been broken into and carjacked. And so now he doesn't have a car. So we kind of do a quick cut to the police station. So I guess what was going to be like a 15 minute outing to go pick this up. Now, he, who knows how much longer he's at the police station giving a police report about his stolen car. Gets out of the police station and he needs to get a ride because, you know, it's a pre-Uber time. So he calls Leah. He calls Jennifer Love Hewitt to come pick him up. And this was the moment I was like, OK, this is really pre-cell phone. She's like, go meet me at the corner of blank and blank. I'll see you there soon. And he's got to get a bus and go meet her there. And they have no way to get in touch. It's like, I feel like this would have led to, to mishaps all the time. It's like, oh, this person got held up or something like that. Yeah, what gets me even more than cell phones is just thinking back to a time before GPS. Mm, mm -hmm. And like, okay, you got to get there. Well, where is there? And what are the steps that I need to take to take me from here to there? Neither of us are particularly good with directions i don't think brian that's right maps in our heads my wife is pretty good i'm terrible at it so i would have i would have floundered in the pre-gps era it's like when i started dating and driving around for the first time in high school i would always print out pages and pages of map quest 
because I didn't yet have a GPS thing in my car, but you could still do it online. And I would print it out and then I would use that to get where I had to go. And you could also have it like generate a map for you that I would print out too. But I think before that I, I would have really struggled. Mm hmm. So he gets on this bus and, and the bus driver here, another what the hell appearance. It's Anthony Michael Hall, who you might know from Breakfast Club and, and other stuff. Yeah, he was in a couple of the um, John Hughes movies, right? Yeah, I think he was in um, 16 Candles, too. He had a really good guest appearance on Community, but he plays a crazy bus driver who gets really mad that he doesn't have exact change. Which is a, a very goofy thing, but it leads to like this crazy bus ride where he's flopping around as the guy's doing like donuts driving the the bus stop. And then eventually he like kind of launches him out, kicks him out like cartoon physics style, like you said. I feel like this set piece must have been really expensive. They got this huge bus doing all these stunts, tearing around the town, you know, spinning through this parking lot like this took a lot of resources to put together it had me wondering brian what are some of the the more memorable bus movies or bus scenes we did train month recently what about buses right well we watched it happened one night which was very much about a bus the love bus as we called it um i've never seen speed okay the Amazon sidebar tells me that the number they wrote on the bus in this movie is the same number that's on the bus in Speed. Oh, in, you mean in Trojan War? Yeah. Ah, interesting. Yeah, uh, Speed comes to mind too. Those were the two that I was going to mention. Let's see if I... Oh, uh, Harry Potter 3, when he gets on the, the Knights bus or whatever it's called. Right. I was thinking of that because it has the same like sort of crazy driving around. And in that one, Daniel Radcliffe is kind of flopping around as the bus accelerates and turns, sharp turns and stuff. There's a Ghibli movie with the cat bus. Totoro. I love Totoro. Yeah, good call. So up until this point, the movie has been very goofy and horny, but it hasn't been problematic in any sense. And we are about to jump right over the problematic barrier here. Essentially, every subsequent subplot that gets introduced has some sort of racial caricature in it. Yeah, I think it's on point that you mentioned tributes to John Hughes, because this really feels like it's like a decade <laughs> older than it is. Right. Yeah, John Hughes movies had, had some of those in there. Um, what's the, Do you remember the name of the character in... Long Duck Dong? Yeah, in 16 Candles. Yeah, we watched 16 Candles for the last day of school in 10th grade in our chemistry class. And there were multiple things um, like there's like a passed out girl in the back of a car and yeah. they like give her to the nerd. It's like to go oh. have your way with her. Yeah, that is not cool. <laughs> that wouldn't it shouldn't have flown then and it definitely wouldn't fly now. Yeah. But the first one of these is. So he gets kicked out of the bus and he ends up like right at the doorstep of this bar that I guess is a Mexican stereotype. It's like generic uh, Latin Hispanic stereotype where they're playing generic Latin Hispanic Mexican whatever music. There's tango in there. They talk about doing the Macarena at one point. Very timely. Another yeah. one, because that was I remember uh, first grade 1996 into 1997. They were cranking that all the time and they're very much stereotypical uh 
people inside the bar. There's like the the woman, the larger woman who just wants to dance and wiggle and like pulls him into this dance contest. We got a cameo from Danny Trejo in here. That was fun. I was like, oh, that, that guy, Danny Trejo, Uncle Machete. He, you know, 25 years ago, he was a little less wrinkly than he is now. I had to think for a second, is that Danny Trejo or is it not? Oh, interesting. I mean, he still kind of had that baseball glove look, but I wasn't 100%. And then as it went along, it's like, yeah, that's him. So he gets pulled into this dance competition by this woman and they end up winning the dance competition. And he is like kind of he's just being tugged around. He's like not really participating in it. And he's remember, he's still trying to get back to Brooks at this point. And he finally like sneaks out of the bar and immediately he gets run over by a car. And it turns out the car he gets run over by is the Jag that got stolen from him. But in the like one hour since then, it's been completely pimp my ride fixed up, decorated. It's like on the high rise suspension now and stuff. And it's apparently been carjacked and and fixed up by this gang called the Vatos, who are like, I mean, they're all black and they're like playing up on the 90s gangster rap stereotype. Right, so we've gone from one Hispanic stereotype thread to another Hispanic stereotype thread. Yeah, I kind of pegged him more as like generic black stereotype, but I guess they were kind of Hispanic too. Well, I mean, they were definitely, they weren't black. It was definitely like a Hispanic gang. Okay. Um, But it, it left me wondering, it's like, why don't we mix it up a little bit? It's like where, you know, I feel like you could definitely have some other kind of stereotype here. <laughs> if you, you know, if you're... Just a scoop from a couple barrels, not just they they just doubling down on the Latinos. I read it as like a slightly different flavor. Maybe it is Latino, but it's like very different uh, version of the stereotype because here it's like a gang. You know, it's not just like silly flamenco dancer type thing. Right. Vato, Spanish, used to refer to a man, a young man. OK, well, then that'll do it then. And so for whatever reason, he gets pulled into their car and they're driving around and it comes out that they did the graffiti on the school. And he's like, oh, they cleaned up that graffiti. And so then they drive really angrily over to the school to do the graffiti again. So now we're back at the school where the movie started, except we're in the middle of the night now and they're doing the graffiti again. And this time what they do the graffiti as is a topless version of Brooke, basically. And they have Brad do like the finishing touches on the nipples and stuff. All very sophisticated comedy here. But this had me thinking of a couple of things. We have the drawing in some kind of wonderful. It's also a major plot point. And then, of course, Titanic. Uh, you know, she's not naked in some kind of wonderful's picture. But in Titanic's, we have the same thing where there's like a dramatic naked drawing of the, the star of or one of the stars of the movie. That's right. And they ditch him as he's wrapping up the graffiti. And of course, what he's mad about here is that they took the condoms with him. So even though he lost his dad's valuable sports car, he doesn't have the condoms that he bought at the store again. But then he remembers. And I liked the way this was lit. It made me think of the third man when like the light kind of shines out and it hits the dramatic reveal of, I guess, is is it a spoiler to say that Orson Welles is in the third man at this point? So... We're getting off topic, I think, but 
Orson Welles is on the poster, at least the like Amazon thumbnail for that movie that I just watched not too long ago. And yeah, there's like a big reveal in the movie that, oh, Orson Welles is the guy. He's the third man. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's what the poster showed, at least what I saw. But maybe, you know, this long after it came out, people are just supposed to know that. And I think Orson Welles is the most famous part of that movie at this point. It's like, even though he's all in it for all of like eight minutes or something, it's right. It's a memorable eight minutes. But anyways, yeah, he's so we have a similar like dramatic use of light in the dark here, except this time it's to spotlight the bio classroom where that one free condom that he didn't grab at the beginning of the movie is there. So he breaks in and when he breaks in, he alerts the janitor. And so now we have racist subplot number three, because the janitor is like a little bit of an Asian Kung Fu stereotype. And he starts chasing down Brad. The shenanigans just escalating to heightened levels with each subsequent scene. One of the things that uh, Will Friedle mentioned in his cameo is that he spends a lot of this movie wet and they had to re-simulate that every night they were shooting. And this is where we see him get wet. Like the janitor hoses him down with like a high pressure water hose like a, from like a... a fire uh what are those called fire hydrant type spray and he goes fl- flying down the stairs pretty good slapstick and another thing that i was impressed with will Friedle is he did the slapstick pretty well too it seemed like yeah a lot of pratt falls later on there's also a sprinkler system that gets him right and he manages to escape and now he finally gets picked up by leah you know, she's realized that she has feelings for him and she tries to confess her feelings and say, hey, why don't we go to the party? But we can go together. But he, of course, is still has like one track mind on Brooke. Um, and so, of course, this makes Leah, this makes Jennifer Love Hewitt really mad. And she kicks him out of the car down out of Brooks. And things just keep getting worse for for Brad here because he like is trying to get back into her house, but like the sprinkler system goes off and there's a dog chasing him around and the condom goes dramatically flying out of his hand. It's like the feather in Forrest Gump. <laughs> it's like flying through the sky and it goes down the sewer. And he's like, no. And I just thought it, it actually, this was where I was really thinking of super bad because in that Michael Sarah has the one gold bottle of liquor that, whatever the name of the girl that he's after and that had been really wanting. And so he spends the whole night like coveting that bottle and taking good care of it until it dramatically falls from his hand and falls down and crashes. Um, Same energy here, except it's a condom getting washed down the sewer. But after all that, he gets inside and Brooke has left him a note saying that she has decided to go to the big party herself. So now, of course, everything is going to be, culminating at this one big party that has been talked up since the very beginning of the movie. This is right when the movie does something I wasn't expecting. It's like it it has these one scenes with characters and then they all come reappearing again. So like the dancers at the Mexican bar, they show up again. The the Vados, they're going to show up again. Cops that who helped him with the stolen car, they're going to show up again. And we also see like the cops like, man, this dude is causing all sorts of destruction everywhere he goes. What is up with this guy? We got to go arrest him. And then they start chasing him down. So now he's on the run from the cops, too. It was like a weird blend of like taking the destruction seriously, but also like having it be cartoonish. It was, it was kind of funny. 
Yeah, I feel like the most effective movies where it happens in a short window of time are going to do something like this, where the various story threads kind of interweave and reappear. Right, that's very American graffiti. Yeah. So he, he gets to the party. Oh, there's a whole thing where there's this homeless man that he's crossed paths with a couple times, and he pays him to get his outfit, so he's got this ridiculous, almost pimp-looking outfit. Right, and the bomb is David Patrick Kelly, who is a character actor who I mentioned a couple episodes back. I kind of randomly like spent a weekend with. He came and was a guest at the William & Mary Film Festival when we showed The Warriors one year. And so he was just kind of around. Oh, we should have called him. Be like, hey, it's your old pal Brian. Yeah. But of course, he's lost for... Like the third time now, he's he's lost his his condom that he he's been wanting this whole time, and so he goes to another store to get it, a, a convenience store where the person working the cash register is Kathy Kathy Griffith, the comedian. Didn't she have some show called like My Life on the D List? Probably, yeah. Um, she was in. I don't know. I've seen her in a few things. Let me look up what is she famous for, Kathy. Oh, she, oh, is it Griffin? Sorry, I've been saying Kathy, Kathy Griffith. There's Kathy Lee Griffith, who was on Regis and Kathy Lee. Yeah, no, this is Kat, Kathy Griffin. She's like a sort of strawberry blonde comedian. And she was controversial during the Trump era because she kept making jokes about Trump dying. That was like one of her things. Yeah. And the person I just called Kathy Lee Griffith is Kathy Lee Gifford. Okay. So nobody is Griffith. There is no <laughs> Griffith. There's a Griffin and a Gifford. All right. And then the Vados reappear, the the gang that stole this car, and they're doing a stick up on the convenience store. And it had me wondering, why is this such a frequent thing to happen in movies where the protagonist is part of a crossfire in a holdup at a store? So it definitely happens in American Graffiti and super bad and it's a major plot point in boogie nights and then i was trying to remember is um repo man does it happen yeah it was in repo man i just watched taxi driver it happens interesting and so he gets taken hostage by the vados as part of this everything that could be going wrong is going wrong it's it's like a constant escalation of the chaos but eventually he ends up back at the police station and um, there's this cop here, and uh, the cop is played by Lee Majors. So, Brian, are you familiar with this actor? Right. So I don't know that I would have recognized him right off the bat, but he does have the name tag that says he's Officer Austin. So he was known for playing Steve Austin, the $6 million man back in, when was that show, on the 80s? Yeah, let me look it up. 1973 to 1978. Okay. So the 70s. 70s, Yeah. This cop gives Brad a lecture about love and make sure it's real love because it kind of gets, we have this kind of parody scene where uh, Brad is like uh, almost as if he's being interrogated is talking about how he just wants to get with this girl and and that's all that, that he cares about. But then this cop is like trying to steer him correctly and be like, 
make sure it's real love, man. And then he like dramatically flips him. It's almost like a flipping someone a coin, you know, except he flips him a shiny condom wrapper. And when he throws it, it makes the like slow motion six million dollar man sound. Oh, okay. (laughs) Clever, clever. I haven't seen that show, so I did not catch that reference, but I like that. I wonder if Will Friedle had seen Six Million Dollar Man when that was filmed. <laughs> Which is not a reference I get. <laughs> Wasn't a meteor, it was a cookie wand. All-time great community moment. So finally, he gets his way back to the party. At this point, the the Jaguar, it has like flipped over and destroyed. It made me think of Ferris Bueller's Day Off when Cameron or whatever his name is, his... Uh, crashes his dad's car definitely and that one is kind of for dramatic effect and here it's just for goofy comic effect and ends up having no consequences by the end of the movie yeah like from the moment the car was introduced i was thinking of ferris bueller's day off was john hughes involved with that one yes yeah written and directed by john hughes there you go he keeps coming up i i feel like some of that must have been intentional yeah homage it's like in the dna yeah so now everything is back to the party. All the characters are at the party here. We got, of course, Brad. We got the Jennifer Love Hewitt character. Brooke's here now. The other friends are here now. The D-back boyfriend's here now. And for whatever reason, Brooke is still rearing to get with Brad. Not quite sure why at this point, but she like pulls him up to a bathroom and they're about to hook up. And she does the thing where that had happened a few times throughout the movie where she says his name wrong. She calls him Brent instead of Brad. And this is the moment when it goes off in his head that, hey, maybe this is kind of what that cop was talking about. This is not the real love here. And he starts to have a vision of Jennifer Love Hewitt, which, you know, I've had a vision of Jennifer Love Hewitt before, but I haven't had the opportunity to race out into the street and catch up with her, which is exactly what Brad does. He leaves Brooke. He gets punched by the D-bag boyfriend, but still runs away. The dog is there that had been chasing him, the group of people from the Mexican dance bar there, and they start dancing with some friends. It's a very goofy, but pretty satisfying ending, I would say, of like everything colliding at once. The The dog bites the D-bag boyfriend and the wiener. Very, very funny. Very good. High class stuff. And of course, uh, he chases down Leah, confesses his feelings, and they kiss. And then the movie ends immediately. No repercussions to the massive destruction that has gone it's, it's like the the spongebob mean we did it we saved the city when everything is burning around him or mm-hmm. like any avengers movie or marvel movie where it feels like they blow up the city rather than saving it so this is basically exactly how some kind of wonderful ends chasing the girl down in the street and in that one they played the cool version of uh yeah no tin whistle cover yeah of uh in this one uh can't help falling in love with you this one does have a decent hardcore 90s soundtrack, just like intensely 90s, late 90s uh, pop punk type stuff. Not quite as intense as. Um, right. What's that movie called? Uh, oh, I haven't brought this to the pod. Maybe I'll bring this to the pod late, uh, later this summer. Um, might be too similar to this, but it's called um, Can't Hardly Wait, which is in the same approximate genre of this, but more of an ensemble piece. It's like a dollar store version of Dazed and Confused. Interesting. And so that is Trojan War, Brian. We did it. We made it there and back again. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it, it's it's good. The one thing that 
didn't get said that was maybe my favorite moment of the whole film uh, because it's just peak screenwriting. Um, the D-bag boyfriend is driving around with his friends after he's left Brooke alone with Brad. And the friend says, why are you out here with us when she's in there fin slapping that Urkel? <laughs> fin slapping that Urkel. Oh, what a and, line. Yeah, uh, that just skyrocketed easily top five movie lines for me all time <laughs> finn slapping that urkel he's okay I, not, I mean not only is it timely because this is 1997 and family maddie's was riding high but you know not banging that nerd <laughs> finn slapping <laughs> that urkel it's got a poetry to it it's it's a beautiful turn of phrase just a couple small other number of thoughts on this one the music in this is by someone named George S. Clinton. And when I first saw that, I got really excited because one of the all time great funk musicians from the 70s is a guy named George Clinton, the guy who started Parliament and Funkadelic and whatever. And then I realized, no, it's just a film composer whose name happens to be George S. Clinton. And I wonder how many gigs he got because someone was like, oh, we can hire George Clinton to do this music. Wow, that's going to be real fun. And then like some milk toast white dude walks in. Wow, I did not realize that. I think I've seen this name in a couple different movie credits, and I just assumed that was the, the famous one. Um, but also, is he any relation to William Jefferson Clinton? Probably not. Okay. I don't know for sure. George S. Clinton also wrote the music for Mortal Kombat. Let's see. Uh, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Oh, the whole trilogy, Austin Powers. So, you know. Oh, he's got a composer credit on the Zombies movies, Brian. There you go. I told you I've seen that name in a couple in a couple movies before. Okay. I'm looking this up. The soundtrack. What? I can't believe he wrote the, the Zombies songs, and I'm just realizing this. That's mind-blowing. <laughs> Well, did he just do like incidental music or does it actually say that he was the, the guy who did the songs? Well, that that's what I'm looking up now, because this would be like I would need to sit down and like have a sip of water. Let's see. On the Wikipedia article, it, he is listed as the composer. Zombies, Zombies 2, Zombies 3. It says composer George S. Clinton. So. All right. So now I'm looking at the writing credits. On the other hand, if you look up the actual songs... I am not seeing him listed. So he might have just written the, the incidental music, like you said. Yeah, he's not listed as a credit on the the soundtrack. So I don't know if he actually wrote the pop songs in, in Zombies, the soundtrack songs. That's all right. In the town of Seabrook, werewolves, humans, and zombies live in peace. That's the opening sentence of the Zombies 3 Wikipedia article. Excellent. All right, Brian. I also wanted to shout out a couple of more people who appeared. Um... Eric Balfour plays the D-bag boyfriend. He, he's been in a lot of stuff. He was in that miniseries about the making of The Godfather from this year. The Offer, it's called. Did you see anything about that? I heard that it happened. I talked to some people who watched it. That's the extent of my knowledge. Wendy Malick, who has appeared in a bunch of sitcoms. She's the mom here. And then totally random ass appearance. 
Jenny Kwan, who's a voice actor. And the thing I know her from is she plays Suki in the Avatar The Last Airbender, plays one of the, the girlfriends of Brooke. Oh, wow. So I've kind of tossed in my good things, not so good things. Made me laugh. Could have been like maybe 80% less racist and still would have like felt a little too racist. Like maybe pump the brakes just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I really do see it as like in the tradition of those older teen comedies. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was, you know... It was it was decent. I, I'm ready to put a number on it. All right. I want to know what is it rated though. Did it get a? Uh, I, I assume it got the uh, MPAA. I'm gonna guess PG-13. I think you're probably right because I don't remember swears, and the only nudity is illustrated nudity. Right. Rated PG dash. I assume that's a 13 after that dash. Rated PG-13. There you go. So, yeah, let's do it. So let me talk us in. <clears throat> is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So Brian is Trojan war 1997 starring Will Dell, Jennifer Love Hewitt directed by George Wong. Good. So I'm right on the fence between a four and a five on our eight point scale. I think I'm going to fall just into the very highest fours. I'm a little torn. I think I gave some kind of wonderful a five, and I probably like this one about as much. It keeps up the energy throughout. That said, it's a little silly, the energy. Like, it was, it's like oddly cartoony, uh, but I guess that was what it was going for. Odd to hear that, you know, they put all these resources behind the movie and then essentially shelved it. And I would still like to know more about why that is. I would be interested to see more from this director. Yeah, you read up a little bit on the director and, and we were talking about it before we started recording. So what, what did you learn about this director when you looked him up? So it said that he met and became friends with Robert Rodriguez, that like Robert Rodriguez stayed in his apartment at some point in the 90s and like encouraged him to break away from the studio system and make his own films. Hmm. And the first movie that he made was one a couple years before Trojan War called Swimming with Sharks, which is apparently about being like a low-level studio employee. I was kind of picturing Manny from Babylon that we just watched. Oh, nice, yeah. Bottom rung studio employee who's trying to climb and carve out an identity for himself. Yeah, I thought that looked intriguing, yeah. And then he he's listed as a creative consultant on Spy Kids 3D and Machete and a co-producer on Spy Kids 4. So, yeah, so I guess it is my turn to answer whether Trojan War is good. I'm basically at exactly the same point as you, Brian. Like, it's either a very low five good or very high four good-ish and my heart says give it a five. And I'm gonna this is like a, a quintessential Dan pick, so I think I need to permit my heart some uh some silliness here. It's kinda like when I got a little carried away and gave premature a six. Although I think you also gave that one a six, so maybe I wasn't too too crazy for that one. And um I don't know. It it, it just made me smile the whole time, and it's like not cheaply crafted. It's got cinematic value to it. It is very silly, but like 
in the kind of silly that I just don't they wouldn't make it this fun anymore. It wouldn't you wouldn't have the crazy bus doing the donuts in the middle of the road and you wouldn't have quite so dramatic a shot dog chasing after him and car crashing the, the dad's Jaguar. And I don't know. It's just a kind of a goofy fun, trashy, not even trashy. It's not the right word. It's, it's horny and dumb and silly and a teen comedy. It's a teen comedy is what it is. And to me, it is enjoyable and uh, bonus points for having the exact kind of story that I find to be my guilty pleasure when the, the best friends get together at the end. That's what bumps it over the four to the five for me. I'm giving this a five, a good Trojan War. So there we go, Brian. Cool. So my understanding is you are going to be traveling next week. Yes. Taking a trip for a week with uh, the graduate program that I'm doing. Uh, a group of people, students going to Los Angeles to network with some alumni of the program who are living and working out there. So hopefully I'll meet some new people and make some connections and at least learn about how they're making a life. Awesome. Well, I hope your trip is good. Thank Shouldn't you. throw us off too much because, you know, we can record when you get back. Yep. Um, what will we be watching and discussing next time, Brian? All right, so I had a couple possibilities in mind, but as we talked, I realized I think I've got a good one to follow this one up. It's another movie from 1997. It's called The Odyssey. Oh. And it is an adaptation of the epic by Homer from ancient Greece, Tales of the Heroic Age, about Odysseus making a journey to the Trojan War and then trying to get back home. Uh, this version which I think is the best version. At least it's it's the best of what I've seen. It's got Armand Asante playing Odysseus. So this is a miniseries, not a movie. Right. Well, it was aired in like two two-hour chunks on TV. And so the total is like three hours. It might be a hair over three hours. I mean, that's how long Babylon was, you know, so. Right. And it was only as you were saying that, that like, getting hit in the head by a two by four. I realized that probably very intentionally they called it Trojan war and then structured the story as him making a nighttime odyssey. I was wondering what the Trojan war aspect was other than just Trojan brand condoms, but right. I, I see, I see yeah. more, this having more in common with the odyssey than the Iliad. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. But cool. Well, I have never seen any adaptation of the odyssey. So I will look forward to watching this. I did read it in high school, and we can maybe talk a little bit about that. But yeah, this should be fun, Brian. All right, I'm looking forward to it. Join us again, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Mm -hmm.